This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. listeners, we're back with part three of episode 20, Martin R. Delaney. When last we left Delaney, he was setting sail, literally and figuratively. Not only was he headed to Liberia to start putting things in place for a colony of black emigrants from the U.S. so that they could return to and resettle their continent of origin, he was also embarking on a new career as an author. But I think we need to backtrack just a little bit to talk about how Delaney got here. Not physically, but mentally. Because during the early parts of his career, Delaney seemed pretty content to try to change the system from the inside. Maybe with the optimism of the young. Um, And by system, I mean the ideological system and culture of the United States. He believed it could be changed at this early part of his career, but... That belief wasn't going to last. That belief could be changed. Yeah. Biographer Dr. Tunde Adeleke, who studies 19th century African-American history uh, and is a professor at the (laughs) University of Iowa, notes that Delaney's, quote, disillusionment began with the passage of the famous or infamous Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 and would deepen as the decade wore on. He denounced America as irredeemably racist, end quote. Why? Why this denouncement? Why this, like, loss of belief that the United States could change? Um, Well, I mean, it's directly linked to the Fugitive Slave Law, but Adeleke notes that, uh, quotes Delaney directly here, sort of explaining this change of mindset. So, quote, the racial term people of the United States are positively degraded beneath the level of the whites, are made liable at any time in any place and under all circumstances to be arrested, and upon the claim of any white person, without the privilege even of making a defense, sent into endless bondage. We are slaves in the midst of freedom, waiting patiently and unconcernedly for masters to come and lay claim to us, trusting to their generosity whether or not they will own us and carry us into endless bondage." End quote. Yeah, which is kind of like what we were talking about um, in one of the previous episodes about having those slips written. I I think that's what Delaney's talking about here is that, you know, their word isn't going to be taken for them being free. They have to have some kind of, yeah. you know, signed note from a white person saying, yeah, he's allowed to be in town, which is gross. Yeah. Reading this from the perspective of 2020, it sounds horrifyingly familiar like you know that like that whole trend of quote unquote concerned white women calling the police on like ups drivers who just happen to be black and like they're taking the white lady's word over the ups driver's word you know like it's still a problem and delaney knows that like when when the fugitive slave act passes 
he knows that like racism is built into the way the U.S. works, that it's not like something that you can surgically extract. It's like woven into the very fiber of the country. And so he's like, okay, well, if that's the case, where else can we be, right? Yeah, which I think, like you were saying, with current things happening, um, like, was really prescient because there's still things happening. Uh, Sorry. Like, I don't know, this is a bit of a political tangent, but these things are still very much happening and we've not fixed these things. Yeah. They've just become a little bit more, um, like, not devious, but... uh, they're not quite as enshrined in law, but they really are in social law. Like, um, I don't know, maybe this is a tangent that I will cut out, but I was thinking of, did you hear about the case of um, Renisha McBride in 2013? She's the woman who, I think she was like 18 or 19, and she got in a car crash and then sought help, and the homeowner who she sought help from shot her. And obviously there are more recent examples. Uh, yeah. yeah. So this isn't directly relevant, but it's just, uh, yeah, he was right. Yeah, he was right. And uh, like it seems like every day he gets proven more right. Um, but I mean, I think people will question his like decision. Or, I mean, I think people might have different response than he does to like this yeah. bone deep knowledge right like they might be like well stay and fight anyway if america is if if the government as it exists if our society as it exists is indestructible from racism and slavery then we need to just build a new one right and i think that both responses are entirely legitimate and based in like personal experience of the world yeah absolutely but for delaney the answer seemed to be liberia (laughs) yeah and and why liberia in particular sorry go ahead no i was just going to say i think as people who haven't experienced this at any level um yeah we can sympathize with why he came to start thinking about this without making a judgment of whether that was the correct answer because that's not our place oh yeah um yeah but yeah why liberia that's a really good point i did not learn about this until i was um at phd level yeah i think i only learned about this sort of from reading like introductions to critical editions and maybe in passing in a couple of literature classes so if you like me did not learn about any of this in history classes in high school or in college um uh here's a little bit of a backstory (laughs) so There's this article in the Anti-Slavery Reporter uh, dated the 1st of April, 1869. So this is about 10 years forward from where we're at in our story right now. Um, And it explains that Liberia had been a republic for about 20 years, and it's modeled on the U.S. uh, government. So it's been operating as a republic for about 10 years at the time that Delaney set sail. And we're not going to go into the backstory of why. Um, That's a whole other episode. And maybe we'll be able to point you to some resources on that. Um, But Mm. 
it's this sort of familiar way of doing things that probably, I would imagine, spoke to him, especially as this really politically active person. Um, so it's like you can return to this sort of proverbial home, although many of the people who would go would not have been from Liberia. Um, but you also get this sort of familiarity of the place you grew up baked into the political system. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but I think that heavily factors into it. Um, and like, I think the US and the UK were very interested in Liberia. Charles Dickens actually writes about Liberia and Haiti in All the Year Round um, in, on the 19th of July of 1862. So I think we'll probably link to that piece in the show notes. It uses antiquated racial terms, as you probably can expect. Um, mm. But yeah, so that's sort of a little bit why maybe why Liberia is the place they're shooting for. Yeah. So that's in... 1859. I thought it was 1859. I didn't want to speak too soon. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's 1859. And then the next year, 1860, he goes on the seven-month tour of Great Britain. And um, we were kind of talking about this because we're not really sure. We want to know more about what happened here. So... Uh, Maybe we'll find some resources to point you to, but he goes to uh, Britain and attends the International Statistical Congress in London in July of that year, where Lord Henry Peter Brougham introduced him to Congress as a racial term, who is a man, which is, yeah, wild. Um, and apparently that upset the American delegation who then walked out. Do you have any sense of whether they were upset on his behalf or? No, it could be either way. Like, I mean, I would I would hope that these people he's traveling with are upset that he's been sort of like very racistly backhand complimented, right? Yeah. But it might just be that they're upset that he's being equated to a man, which is horrifying. And so like, we, yeah, no clue which alternative it is. Hopefully we can figure that out uh, with some yeah, subsequent I research. I <laughs> uh, think we want to dig into whether that was they were offended because of course he's a man, or they're offended because yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's try and look on the bright side and hope it was the first case. Yeah. Um. Not everyone's on board with the Liberia train, though. So in 1861, the British, some British missionaries and the British government convinced the ruler of Abeo Kuda to rescind his agreement with Delaney and the... Oh no, I started using... Acronyms. Abbreviations like I was going to remember. Niger Valley Exploring Party. Um, so suddenly their agreement with the ruler of Abeokuda to allow uh, black immigrants to settle there uh, falls apart. Um, Delaney keeps trying to make this plan work in a variety of ways, and in the process kind of joins forces with Henry Highland Garnett's African Civilization Society, um, which is just another movement, a sort of back-to-Africa movement. Do you know more about that? Um, I don't. I, um, 
what is quickly becoming my favorite website, Black Pass, does have information about this. Um, yeah, so it is a part of the Back to Africa movement. Um, so this article that I'm reading by Evelyn Fenner Doherty on Black Past says that, quote, Garnet envisioned educated black Americans moving to the African continent as cultural missionaries to lead the economical, economic, political and moral development of the various indigenous peoples. So, oh, no. yeah, not... <laughs> not great i mean i immediately obviously civilization struck me as a bit of a dog whistle um and i oh, was yeah. hoping it yeah wouldn't be uh i mean i do think this is very complicated um yeah I mean, yeah this is a really good example of how complex things yeah like i mean delaney is anti-colonialization but at the same time, a product of the society he grows up in that believes very heartily in civilization as this sort of, like, objective thing that some people have and others don't. Yeah, and the other thing is that, um, I mean, that sounds really bad, right? Like, not really bad, but I don't know. It's something that um, I think we both had a knee-jerk reaction to, this idea that African-Americans were going to go to, or black Americans were going to go to Africa and educate them on culture and politics and morals which is extremely not good but then there are other aspects of it um yeah. like it says one of their kind of mission statements is that black americans should lead their own education efforts and establish and control the political and social institutions in their communities which obviously is something that i think we're both pro uh Sorry, this is a yeah. obviously not a visual medium, but the lights have gone out on me and I'm kind of waving my hands around like one of those <laughs> like car showroom forecourt dancers because I can't get them to go back on. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, is this a metaphor? <laughs> I got them, but yes, it could well be a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is like, like you said, like many things, really a complicated issue and we can't just say especially from I mean especially from my perspective as a white British woman I don't want to say whether that was good or bad but um extremely nuanced I would say yeah meanwhile back in the US uh in the same year things have reached a boiling point so 1861 is the year that the American Civil War starts um and Delaney's not one to be left out of revolutionary goings-on. Um, so he, so by 1863, he is back home actively recruiting black troops to serve in the Union Army. Yeah, and then the next year he buys his own house in Wilberforce, Ohio. Is that named after William? I would guess. I would assume so. Yeah. Oh, so they named the place after the local college, which is Wilberforce College. Um, which itself is named after William Wilberforce and hmm. Wilberforce University, which I guess is what Wilberforce College became and Central State University are both based there and they're two historically black universities. Oh, very cool. That's just a cool background. Yeah. So he's got time to kind of go back and forth between 
war activities and personal life. And it's like this rare glimpse we get of his personal life. Because if you've been listening since part one, like we learn the names of his children and then like promptly never hear about any of them again. Yeah. Um, and it's not because we don't want to talk about his home life. It's because nobody's talking about his home life and, and possibly because, you know, like he's not sharing his home life. Like some things you just keep private. <laughs> Yeah, and it's the issue of preservation. Yeah. 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 Um, but we do know in 1865 that he meets President Lincoln, uh, and he's commissioned very shortly thereafter as the first black major in the Union Army. Um, I don't think we're going to go very deep into his military career here, so if you're interested, take a peek at the show notes for links to his biographies. Um, but suffice it to say that his military career takes him to South Carolina for about three years, uh, where he becomes very politically active. Yeah, so he becomes, obviously, one of the first black, uh, not one of the first black major in the Union Army, if he's, as you've said, but that's not necessarily what we're interested in. Um, so something that we are interested in we could find some information but not as much as we maybe would like is that in 1867 Delaney actually opposes efforts to name a black vice presidential candidate to the Republican ticket um I mean one thing that we were saying just talking to each other is that this may well be like Mary Corelli's and other women's oppositions to suffrage, where you think there are other things that we need to gain before we go for this, and there are more um, material ways in which black people or women are being oppressed than representation in the White House, uh, because it's a really complicated issue. Yeah. But yeah, like Adelaide, who we mentioned earlier, one of uh, Delaney's more recent biographers um, kind of explains that this is also a little bit of um, Delaney just realizing sort of the situation that newly minted black voters found themselves in. So he, uh, he writes, quote, Delaney was particularly critical of and categorically rejected and condemned as premature the call for a black vice president for the country made by Wendell Phillips at the session of the 1867 State Constitutional Convention in Columbia, South Carolina. He deemed the idea nonsense and the product of youthful exuberance. Quote, no wise black man would make such premature political demand, he affirmed, urging black people instead to Quote, be satisfied to take things like other men in their natural course and time, prepare themselves in every particular municipal positions, and they may expect to attain to some other in time, end quote. Um, so that, that sounds maybe worse than it is. I think um, Adelaide A kind of gives context to that and says that, like, he's he's watching the way that white people sort of panic any time a black person has power, right? And he's afraid of the consequences of what happens if they sort of aim too high too soon, mm. which is more of a comment on how effed up everything is in the United States than it is on him personally. He's just trying to protect himself and his fellow new voters 
Um, yeah, and this this idea that he encouraged um, black men not to seek political offices until they're ready and qualified, I think, plays into that. Is that he's not saying he's not saying that they're fundamentally unqualified. He's saying if you try this too soon, that will kind of prove negative stereotypes about black people not necessarily being obviously which are false stereotypes about not being capable and you need to really you know it's that thing about um which is often said of minorities like you need to try twice as hard as a white man to get anywhere yeah like and you I, need to be an i do ex- want to point out that sorry no, I was just going to say you need to be an expert and something to be able to speak, whereas someone who is privileged can kind of just go in and do whatever. Yeah, definitely. And I want to point out that Delaney is not like, he's not a lone voice, right? Like, I'm, he's not the only one talking about this. And a lot of, there were black activists and politicians who disagreed with him. So we're getting his perspective and we're just trying to understand his perspective. But yes yeah he's not a monolith he's not representative he's he's this is his opinion and we're just trying to under you know trying to explore why why it might have been yeah. his opinion um i wondered if perhaps it's worth mentioning as well that this is um like they're talking about naming a black vice presidential candidate to the republican ticket because this is kind of the period where republican democrat kind of switch if i'm remembering correctly uh, like that's a bit of a simplification but it yeah i mean lincoln is a republican but looking back we recognize his his politics as not republican he's like progressive right? yeah so like, yeah yeah like andrew jackson being a democrat it's yeah they don't mean the same things as they do in 2020 yeah um I just thought that was important to flag, especially for someone who isn't necessarily an expert in U.S. history. Yeah. Obviously, there are um, really strong connotations to those labels now, but they're not always accurate in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, um, the lady sticks around in South Carolina for a bit. He in 1870, he's made an honorary lieutenant colonel of the state militia and it's at this point in his life that he decides to become a realtor. Realtor? Realtor. If you've been watching um, <laughs> Santa Clarita Diet, it's a Netflix series, there's this whole whole bit about how you pronounce realtor. Uh, yeah. And I just lived that. I mean, we just call them estate agents, which is easier. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah. yeah, he makes the very interesting decision to add a new career um and in 1871 he opens up a real estate agency in charleston south carolina hmm that is a weird path for him to go down i do i kind of understand i think because Hmm. land ownership is power like maybe even more than the ability to vote in this period land ownership is power um so the ability to sort of like help people buy and sell land is like a big deal yeah and having someone from within the community being involved in that does make a lot of sense and 
will probably be really yeah. materially yeah. helpful. So it does make more sense than you might think on the on the face of things. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he's not doing political stuff as well. Yeah, just to add another feather to his cap. In 1875, he's appointed a trial justice by South Carolina's governor, Daniel H. Chamberlain. And also dabbles in one of his earliest professions as the editor of the Charleston Independent for a few months. This is another example where I'm like, when does he sleep? He seems to be doing so much. Yeah, I don't think he does. Because uh, he also is doing a crime, <laughs> potentially. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> although it's really hard to say. In yeah. 1876, he's found guilty of breach of trust and fraud. Uh, why, you ask? For losing $212 entrusted to him by a black church in 1871. So he'd apparently have invested that money in state tax warrants and then lost it. Um, and he is forced to resign as a trial justice as a result of this. But he's pardoned by the governor after some big politicians intervene. So this is his second yeah. pardon by a governor, right? Yeah, because the governor of Pennsylvania pardoned him. Yeah. And I say, like maybe he did a crime it sounds like he didn't like embezzle intentionally right but like or like lose their money intentionally um but it's also really like even if it was you know he was sued by this black church uh the justice system is entirely white and they're not like yeah yeah they're not super objective about these things it sounds like maybe he made a bad investment and that would probably be not to be prosecuted in someone with more privilege but we don't i don't know the full details certainly so yeah uh, but, but it it's is yeah yeah prosecuted super super common in yeah. this time period like it's a trope in novels that you make a bad investment and lose everything yeah like <laughs> yeah I don't know, like, it's a huge part of the plot of H.G. Wells's Tono Bungay, which I just read um, after our Christmas episode. Um, yeah. So yeah, like, it's happening all... Yeah. Happens all the time, especially in the 19th century. Railway investments yeah. and things, yeah, just going... Not working out, but I don't think people are generally um, charged for it. Yeah. Or if they are, they do it on, like, such a larger scale than $212, like... <laughs> Such a larger scale. Yeah, right. Like Gregor McGregor. Delaney is not. <laughs> Gregor McGregor is such a good example. I was going to say Bernie Madoff. But yeah, <laughs> Gregor McGregor is a better contemporary example. Like Delaney is not Bernie Madoff. He's not a. Yeah. Oh. Um. But it seems like potentially this does push him to get deeper into politics. So. He endorses the Democrat Wade Hampton for the governorship of South Carolina and gives speeches on his behalf. And that's part of why I wanted to clarify the kind of switching over of Democrats and Republican around this time. Um, yeah. And it seems like maybe he's not super popular, though, because during a rally in the village of, is it Canehoy? I'm going to pronounce it as it spelt. Um so during a rally in this village, the black militia fires on a black school teacher because they believe he is Delaney. Um, wait, is that a white militia? I assume. No, no, it's not. So oh. he's 
he's made an unpopular decision with the black community and they're like oh heck no <laughs> in, a, okay. in a real big way yeah so i got I a double confused because of the yeah i can see why that confused me as well um so then so the white militia gets involved in the gunfight is that right yeah so yeah i mean this is a very like american story of <laughs> battling militias uh yeah. there's a gunfight um five white militia members end up dead and one black militia member dies um i i feel like militia is a weird term and i wonder if it's just like a bunch of people carrying around guns like you do in the south yeah it's just some dudes uh, yeah um, um, <laughs> thank you uh yeah so i mean for whatever reason delaney has decided to support this guy that the black community in south carolina seems to not like and yeah um and and hampton wins the election and reappoints Delaney as a trial justice because that's the way the political system works in the 19th century and possibly still today. I would say definitely still today. Yeah. <laughs> Whispering in despair is a thing. <laughs> um, and he fills this role as trial justice until 1879. Sorry, I just Googled Wade Hampton, which I probably should have done earlier, but... Uh-huh. That is making it very clear why the black community weren't too into his endorsement Ooh. of a Confederate soldier. He came from a family of really of really large slaveholders. What the heck? Not that they were, you know, they're not really large in size, but I, the impression I get is that they had one of the largest collect not collections of slaves but damn it i can't speak yeah confederate general that's a weird move martin wow. that's a real weird move yeah that's so bizarre he's i mean he's doing some really bizarre things at this point in his life I mean, yeah if you look to historical figures to be you know have a nice neat narrative about them it's never gonna happen but yeah that's yeah yeah i mean yeah I, I just keep going back to the, you know, quintessential Walt Whitman quote, do I contradict myself, then I contradict myself. Yeah. Like, that's what it means to be human, but also, whoa, weird, weird move. Um, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, if anyone knows, please. Not if anyone knows. I'm not saying if anyone has a seance with Martin Delaney and ask him, but if anyone has more insight into this. <laughs> Yeah. People who study this and do know, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, so all of this political dabbling does not mean that he has stopped doing any of his other careers, um, especially his ongoing support of efforts to relocate black people to Liberia. Did I say relocate or did I just like blunder that? Sound like relocate to me. Okay, good. <laughs> It's a weird blank. Oh. Um, so in 18... <laughs> my brain. So in 1877, he works with the Liberian Exodus Joint Stock 
Steamship Company, which focuses on relocating black immigrants from South Carolina and Georgia to Africa. So I don't know what he's doing. I think maybe just doing some planning with them, maybe doing some fundraising or promising to like promote the effort. Yeah. Um, in the next year, their ship, the Azor, sails to Africa um, and surprise, surprise, it's expensive as heck. So they scramble to sort of start raising more funds. And Delaney is named the chairman of the Committee on Finance and starts to, um, I think, basically, like, they've taken out a loan for this ship and it's come and due. So he's trying to raise the funds to pay off the loan and yeah. have their have the company be able to keep the ship. Yes. Or the project be able to keep the ship. Essentially, it seems like they've bought the ship, like the modern equivalent would be they've bought the ship on finance and now they're struggling to make the repayments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's about to be repossessed. Yeah. And in 1879, it is. It's sold at auction. So the Liberian Company's emigration project is ended in 1879. So the ship's sold at auction or in our modern metaphor, repossessed. And that's not the only bit of bad news for Delaney this year. His son, Charles Lennox Delaney, drowns in the Savannah River in December of that year. That's like the only time we've heard about any of his children. Yeah, it's the fact that one of them died. So sad. Yeah. Um, slight upside to that year is that he publishes... Principia of Ethnology, the Origin of Races and Colours. Which I feel like that concept maybe hasn't aged well, but... Yeah, probably not. But it's really a big deal that he's participating in the science, even mm -hmm. if the science is super racist. Yeah, and you can see his perspective of how he's coming to this. Yeah. It's really like hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. So in 1880, at the age of 68, uh, Delaney begins what would ultimately be an unsuccessful effort to obtain a civil service job in Washington, D.C. So this is him. He's trying to level up as a politician, um, but it doesn't pan out ultimately. I mean, yeah. That's a late... Sorry. Like, 68 isn't... It's probably comparatively young compared to a lot of politicians oh yeah that's it's true a spring chicken i mean I, and i guess by like unsuccessful i should clarify that like i mean he is a politician and his politics become really important in the 60s especially 1960s um he's like this really important figure but he doesn't get paid to do the politics yeah like his, I don't know, his politics with a lowercase p are really important. He's not super successful at politics with a capital P. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But he's still trying, and that's, you know, he keeps plugging away at it. So the next year in 1881, he campaigns for John F. Dazendorf. Um, taking a wild shot at that pronunciation. He's a Republican candidate for Congress from Virginia. Yeah. Um, not as many skeletons in his closet, by the looks of it. 
Huh. No, no connection, as far as I can see, to slave owning or the Confederacy. So that's huh. a plus. That's a step in the right direction. Depressingly <laughs> positive for a white person of this time period. Mm-hmm. Um. And two years later, on New Year's Day, he attends a dinner at Freund's Restaurant in Washington, D.C., which is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And, you know, in the course of this celebration, the toast that he chooses to make is to, quote, the Republic of Liberia. So even though he's had all of these unsuccessful attempts... Uh, he still got his sights set on Liberia, and like to kind of bring it up at the celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation tells me at least that he still feels that even though he's participating in the politics of the United States, it's still like, you know, it's still like this racist quagmire, and it's not, Yeah, you know what I mean? Like he's, he's not, he's still looking to something more hopeful. Yeah, he's like not tied to the idea of being an American or that being the, like, I don't know, the key to his identity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Which maybe makes the next thing that we have a little bit less bizarre, because in 1884, um, so if my maths is correct at this time, he's 72, and a firm in Boston decides that a 72-year-old man is the perfect person to work as his agent in Central America, which you may be shocked and surprised to learn does not really work out well for them because Delaney becomes really quite seriously ill and has to go home to Ohio rather than go to Central America or returns home from Central America to Ohio. Yeah. And whatever it is that he's come down with in Central America, which could have been, you know, malaria or a parasite or anything really, uh, is the illness that will send him to his grave. So Delaney dies on the 24th of January, 1885, in his home in Iowa, Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) Right kind of general area. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Wikipedia says he died of tuberculosis. Oh. Interesting. I don't know why that's interesting. So, um, he's buried at his family plot at Massey's Creek Cemetery in Cedarville, Ohio. And I guess the family wasn't doing super well financially. And so he's only, like, his grave is just marked with a small government-issued tombstone, and his name is misspelled on it, um, which was not remedied for about 120 years, apparently. Oh, that's... He's outlived by his wife and several of his children, all of whom were buried with him in the family plot, but none of their graves are marked. Hmm. Which ties into the whole how little we know about them. Yeah. In 2006, though, the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center was able to raise the funds needed to build a monument at the gravesite. 
um, made out of black granite from Africa, and it features an engraved picture of Delaney in his uh, Civil War uniform. Okay, so it was eventually rectified. Yeah. So I think I just found a quote that really sums up, I think, part of why, because you were saying you only heard about him from this, was it a, an article or a course? Yeah, it was an article by Nisi Shaw. And I hadn't previously yeah. heard of. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was. Um, and I hadn't heard of him until you suggested him as a subject, which is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, I just stumbled across on the Encyclopedia Virginia. They have a quotation from Paul Gilroy, who really sums up a lot of why I think some of these people who get forget forgotten um, come to be forgotten. So he says, quote, Delaney is a figure of extraordinary complexity whose political trajectory through abolitionisms and emigrationisms from Republicans to Democrats dissolves any single attempts to fix him as consistently either conservative or radical. Um, and when someone is that uh, contradictory and hard to resolve and create a unique, uh, distinct picture of, it does make them obviously more difficult to study and in a lot of ways less appealing to study because you can't say, oh, he was this saintly figure who was great all the time. Like, as we were just saying, he's a human, so he's contradictory. Yeah. Um, they, they also note, which is, I don't know, um, it seems relevant to a lot of what we were saying about um, lack of preservation, lack of access to archival materials. Um, apparently, Delaney's papers were destroyed in a fire at Wilberforce University in April 1865, so we don't have those source materials that we might have for other writers. Wow. Yeah. Which, I like, yeah, in my research, they're two really big defining characteristics of whether someone gets remembered or forgotten is, can you sum them up neatly as a kind of... Can you sum up their ideology neatly in a way that's palatable to, you know, 2020 sensibilities and literally other materials there? And in both cases, um, Delaney seems to suffer. Yeah, for sure. Um, and like his, he was forgotten fairly early. So W.E.B. Du Bois uh, wrote on Delaney, quote, his was a magnificent life. And yet, how many of us heard of him? So, like, even, you know, 20th century, mm. people have started to forget. That's not to say that there's not a lot of scholarship on him, but um, that I think most of the scholarship on Delaney starts in the 1960s when there's this real interest in black radical figures because of... My brain is blanking. Yeah, civil rights. <laughs> because of the civil rights the movement. Civil rights, Mark X. Um, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. And I mean, I guess, like, this episode is going live in Black History Month, and I think it would be appropriate to end our, our coverage of, our biographical coverage of Delaney with just a call that, like, if somebody with this complicated and eventful of a life and career 
career zuh could be forgotten like even after scholars have sort of brought him back into at least the academy's attention then i think we all need to be doing better we can't rely on our education to have like taught us about these important historical figures and maybe like maybe we need to spend some more time doing the legwork um and reading about people beyond the usual suspects that you learn about in school but that's hard to do right if you don't know where to look so i think maybe i'm going to use twitter for the rest of february to sort of retweet everything i can about people that you might want to read more about yeah i think that's a really um very important point that we can't trust um yeah kind of education systems obviously there are inbuilt limitations that they can't teach everything but they do tend to focus on um privileged groups and we also can't wait until someone says this is a person who's really important to uh, like the history of a group that i belong to like we have to seek it out i mean even the people that you rather than relying on those people to do yeah like just rather than relying on the people who this is kind of personally I don't know how to phrase this. Like, rather than relying on members of those marginalized groups yeah. to do this for us, we need to seek yeah. it out. And we need own. to be aware, like, even the people we do learn about, like Harriet Tubman, often their histories are whitewashed. Like, a lot of people don't know that she was a spy during the Civil War, for example. And so, like, yeah, I think this is an invitation for all of us to really question what we think we know and to dig deeper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so th- maybe that's a good note to end on <laughs> I think it is on that um, kind of semi-heavy note thank you for thank you for listening if you have having just said we shouldn't allow communities to bring things to our attention um, yeah I think we'll both be trying to find people to tweet information about during February but also, if there's anyone that you think would be a really good candidate that we haven't covered, um, please do let us know. I mean, if there's someone that you're passionate about and you want to come talk to us about, I think we'd both be delighted to do that. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, and if you just want to share something with our following on Twitter, you can feel free to add us on Twitter. It's at VS underscore podcast. Um, or if there's something that you know about, a book, a resource, another podcast that you think our other, that your fellow listeners, that you think that, <laughs> that you think the audience would be interested in knowing about, um, yeah, like drop us a line at victorianscribblers at outlook.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter and we will share that out to the rest of our followers. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. We'll see you soon. Not see you, but (laughs) you will hear us soon. Broadcast at you soon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We'll be back next month with some excerpts of Delaney's writing, or the end of this month when you hear this. Yes. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, 
Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons attribution licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. <laughs>